Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, we're all together once again. High five. Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft, are here to bring you another podcast. How's it going? Mike, what's going on in Denver? You're back home. Back home for a week or so, and then I go back up to Alaska. But here, it's ah. been nice. It's Well, it's been... I haven't been around here very much, actually. I've been in Florida and Minnesota and around here the last couple of days. But then I became a plumber when I was here, so I haven't done much here either. Multi-talented yeah. Michael Morrill. <laughs> I should get into the plumbing business, though, because that was... I learned a lot. Well, it's a, it can it be a lucrative business, too, right? Well, yeah. And now that I've learned everything, I could go do it. I learned very little, actually. I learned how to not make it leak. That's step one. Yeah. That's an important one. That's an important one. But nice. it took a long time to figure that out. Well, no but you got it. You conquered it. We made it work. And I caught it. What happened was I had a hot water heater that I've I've been looking at it for like the last year, and it would it was corroded on the top. And I'm like, I ought to change that because I want to come back from one of these shoots one day, and I'm just gonna have a freaking full of water or something right and i just kept it's just one of those things where it's just out of sight out of mind and i finally yesterday i was like you know i'm just gonna go look at that so i had all day to to mess with it so i hooked up the hose and I just drained it and i'm like okay now i gotta go do it so i went and picked one up and came back and when i went to take the old one off that part that i was looking at it was corroded I mean, it just one turn of the wrench and it all came, it crumbled off. I didn't even have to take it off. I mean, it just crumbled. So I don't know how close I was to disaster, but it felt really good to, that I made that decision because it could have been horrible. And this house yeah. is old, so I don't have all those fancy drains and all that stuff. It, but if this would have broke, the drains or the relief valve wouldn't have helped it. It would have sprayed everywhere. So that's my plumbing stuff. My photo stuff has been, Florida was awesome. It was a lot like you going to Australia, right? You go to Florida, it was 80 degrees. We were palm trees and Christmas stuff all over the place and just weird, you know, because you're just not in that frame of mind, but the shoot was great. Then the very next week, I ended up in Minnesota where it was 8 degrees and super windy and cold. You know, it's weird up there. It's You would think with 8 degrees, you would have... We were doing a dot. We have a dog podcast, the Sporting Dog Talk podcast. So we were trying to film this dog working, and we got in these cattails where there's water year-round. So you would think when it's 8 degrees, it'd be pretty solid ice. Turns out it's not. I mean, it had, they had ice, and then they got snow. So that snow is insulating that ice from that cold, cold, cold weather. So that ice is really sketchy. So you just, you're wet all day long too in addition to being in those cold temps but it was we still got a bunch of good stuff i did order the sony a9 for that shoot and it didn't show up so i sent it back i was mad right right <laughs> i just refused you, it you showed them i did <laughs> i showed them the uh what did i get i i got yeah that was just i got the camera and a battery and a and a i just so when I was down shooting the stuff in Florida, I met up with Darren, 
yeah, he was down there too. So we were chatting it up and I used his A9 and I'm like, God, this thing is so fast. So the focus is just amazing. But my Canon's fast too, my 200 to 400. And that's what I was using the whole time down there. And that's what I ended up using in Minnesota when I needed fast stuff. But when I had slow stuff, a lot like, you know, big mammals and stuff, the Sony A7's fine. But if you're trying to shoot a dog running at you at full speed, I just didn't think that the the A7 IV would do it. And I didn't even try it. I just, whenever I had to do those shots, I just used the, the Canon 1DX that I'm used to. But that's why I wanted that A9, the new Mark II. So we'll see. I'll probably end up getting one just because I think it's fast. But then I put my name on a list to get the 1DX Mark III, which I'm told should be out in like January. So we'll see That'd if it actually is. Wow. And I don't know what to expect from that camera. I've done a little bit of searching online just to see what it might bring to the table. Well, that's the that's what you get for the money in those flagship cameras. You know, the the Nikon D6 that's coming out, the Canon 1DX Mark III, the A9 Mark II. You're paying for processing speed, basically, and that's yeah. what you know. They're built like tanks. They're they're meant to be workhorse type cameras. Uh, you can you can abuse them, and those things are going to keep running. But you got two processors where, you know, the eight, the D850, the 5D Mark IV Canon, and the A7R3, they've got one processor in them. One processor in those flagship cameras is dedicated strictly to the focus system. I know at least in the Nikon and the, and the Canon models. So you're going to get, you're going to see that huge increase in focus speed. And that, you know, that's critical when you're, your income depends on you catching everything that happens. And yeah, giving and you the ability to do that. The file sizes are smaller too, so the write speed they is are. so much faster. Yeah. So yep. I think that yep. that makes a big difference. Where you know, because that A nine is only I don't know, like twenty five megapixels or something, and so is the one DX Mark II. I don't know what mm -hmm. the D six is, but I can't imagine it's a huge file size. I think no, I think it's right in there too, like twenty four megapixel, twenty four, twenty six. Now, I was pretty impressed with the A7 when I was in Florida shooting there. I had a creative director over my shoulder the whole time, and, and he would want to see what I'm shooting because I wasn't tethered to a monitor for any of that because we were out on a boat. And I, would sh I couldn't really fill up the buffer. That was good. But I could have 30 images still being written when he was, like, peering over my shoulder wanting, wanting to see an image, and I, we would just have to sit there and wait for the the image is to actually write. So it might take an extra 30 seconds or whatever, which was fine. I mean, ideally you just want to show them immediately like I do with the one DX, but mm -hmm. I don't know. It's fun. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Fun to play with. You know, the day that we're recording this podcast, uh, the podcast that you two did with Courtney and Allie, and I listened to that today. And one of the, I mean, it was a great podcast, but I really enjoyed hearing the idea for our listeners, too, that the idea of renting this gear to test it before you buy it. Yeah. You know, with all these new cameras and lenses coming out, to rent one or two, whatever, you know, you think your go-to might be, what the new gem will be, and try it before buying it for the price point of some of these. 
just get a feel for it. I like that idea, that suggestion. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's a huge investment. So mm-hmm. you, yeah, try before you buy. And we rent all the time, you know, yeah. for the video stuff. So it, it works. It's great. And we did talk about that on the podcast too. Yeah. 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 That's some sound advice without having to jump in and spend all the money. I mean, if you know it's what you want, but really there's so many options now. To try a couple out would be pretty sweet before committing if that's possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Ron, I know that you just returned from. Yeah, we had. Days uh, in the field. Some time with the bighorn sheep rut, and it was phenomenal. As, as always, it's too short. You always want to be there longer, but it was a great time in the field. Great company. It was with my cousin and, and uh, Doug Gardner. And he had just come off of a couple workshops that he had done up there. And so we met just for a few days to shoot after he was done, just so he, he could get some stuff that he wanted to get on his own. Yeah, it, it was great action in spurts. For the first time ever, you know, I'm, I'm always pretty careful. And the D850's got those huge file sizes, so you wouldn't think that this would be the first time. But I'm always careful not to just stay on the hammer and keep shooting. But we had this, you know, you can hear about it on the podcast, or you may have heard about it already on the podcast. We had this event take place where there were seven rams chasing one U that obviously was in hot estrus. And I finally buried the buffer on that camera. <laughs> that was first time on XQD card that I've hit it, but I definitely hit it. It was just unreal what was going on. Did you miss and anything it, because of it? You know, I probably did, but I I think I missed more because they were they were kind of in this old burn. And I didn't talk about this before, but they were in this old burn. So once in a while, you'd be following, you know, all the action. But once in a while, it would catch a tree in front of them as they kind of made their way through the through that burn area. And I probably missed more because of that. But, I, you know, I got so much, I, I'm not complaining about anything. But it uh, it was unreal. And it all, I have no idea how long it lasted. Maybe a few, you know, three minutes, four minutes. But it seemed like it went on all afternoon because it was all you could think about after the fact. So it was, it was fun. Fun time to be in the field. It's a wildlife at our dream. Right, to have oh, that yeah. quality of an experience and shoot. Yeah, and then the next day I got to see a young ram get folded completely in half. Um, and that one's on my Instagram feed. I had to put three pictures together, and they're not the greatest images, but if you look at the sequence, he literally folded that young guy in half, and I've never seen one go belly up. He had him belly up on the ground, and then he just kept jumping up and hammering him he was trying to teach a quick lesson and make sure that it was not soon forgotten yeah i enjoyed your caption on that too today yeah it was it was crazy check it out go to ron's instagram share it on wild and exposed ah there you go or you will probably with the uh with the other podcast that covers this more thoroughly yeah for sure right on right on so on this podcast, we're going to talk about more in depth on your excursion, which is like a part two to your uh, 
New yeah, we Zealand just finished. slash Australia expedition. Yes, this one's all Oz. But now we're just going to talk Australia. But before we do that, I just wanted to see if you guys had done any reading about the new Mac Pro computer. Yeah, the, the, sorry, sir, the, the one that you just ordered? Is that no. the one you're talking about? No, oh. this, this is the new desktop. Ah, oh, okay. All right. I, I saw kind of a teaser, kind of a trailer type image that will be used in advertisement, but I have not done any reading on it. It's It just looks like it is the machine, but I'd have to sell my house in order to buy one. <laughs> I think it is the machine, and if, if you're a photographer, I don't think you need it. If you're doing video, I think it would come in really handy. But it's only going to come in handy if you're making money with video because it is expensive. I think you wouldn't have to max it out. I was hearing astronomical numbers where people are saying, well, if you max it out and you put everything on it and you buy the monitors, you're looking at 55000 bucks for this computer. Yeah. But you can put like 300 and some odd gigabytes of RAM in it. Right. And then it's Which got, is how you can play that 8K video, right? Yeah, so they everybody that shoots red is like, yeah, this is the ticket because it'll do. But then they were saying there's a bunch of other stuff, a bunch of scientific stuff where people are trying to crunch all these numbers scientifically. They're like, that's going to be a pretty big market for it too. It's anything that just needs that horsepower. It's it's probably going to be a pretty good computer for those people. And and if you're trying to cure a disease or kill a disease, or if you're trying to do something that is making a difference for the world, I mean. I guess 50000 bucks is a small price to pay. Very, yeah. So I just was curious to see if you guys saw anything. I've watched a couple of unboxing videos, and I've seen some people do, like, tests on speed. On the internal hard drive, it, it'll write at 3 gigabytes a second. So I saw – I did watch um, – they were talking about the monitor that's going to be available with it, and you'd – before we came on, you had talked about that. Yeah. And it's hard to – it's hard to – quantify the difference when you're watching it on an older monitor (laughs) so apparently it's like 6k it's all color corrected if mark you probably know this it's nits it's the brightness of the monitor itself it maintains a, a minimum level better than any other monitor on the market and then it has the capability to go even higher in spurts so it sounds like it's pretty awesome and being 6K is pretty sweet. But they're, I think, I should look. They're probably online. I think they're around 6000 bucks for the monitor itself. So it's not a contained unit like the current 5K iMac in the monitor. It's it's more like the can it's, with the other. Yeah, world. it's like a desktop. Yep. Yeah, so they totally changed it, too. So that, you know, everybody calls it the trash can. That was the last Mac Pro. Before that, remember what they called the cheese grater? It had those handles on it, and it had those holes in the end, and it looked like a cheese grater. Right. So this one is like an updated version of the cheese grater. Very, mo- you know, very typical Apple, you know, very sleek, very, it just, it's, it's awesome. I mean, you watch some unboxing videos, and it's pretty cool just to see the design and, and the horsepower. It's got to be the fastest computer in the world like that, you know, that you and I could go buy. You could go buy. Yeah. You. Ron yeah. could go buy. You Ron could, could steal uh, his wife's bank account and go buy it. I could give somebody a loan to go buy. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to see if you guys heard anything about that. 
So tell us about Australia. Australia. Australia was, we were there for a week and it was hot and beautiful and full on summer, smoky wildfires. Not exactly where we were, thankfully, but when we arrived, a lot of smoke. Pretty cool experience. So I guess if nobody's listened to the New Zealand, or if, if a listener hasn't listened to New Zealand, just let people know why you were there. Yeah, go back and listen to that. Then come back to this one. Done. No. <laughs> All right. We were there for my daughter's graduation. She was finishing her master's in speech pathology after two and a half years of hard work. So we took the time to go and celebrate with her and revisit where my wife spent part of her youth. And we, since Australia was a shorter segment than New Zealand, we just picked one destination with two trips based out of that the time we were there because with only one week we had a couple of days around the graduation then went and drove uh, four to five hours north of Brisbane in Queensland to Bundaberg where all the exciting stories for today's podcast take place that's why we we're there it was much hotter than New Zealand and, and beautiful summery weather I mean it's their summer there everything's upside down right so it's just flip the year it's it's the longest day of the year coming up at this point and when we were there for the first part of of December. It was very, very warm. Okay. So I have a question for you that I forgot to ask when we talked about New Zealand. Yes. One of the first things that I did, because my science teacher, the physics teacher, told us that when you're in the southern hemisphere and you flush the toilet. Yeah, I knew that was coming. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> it swirls the opposite direction. So did you, did, did you test it? Did you hear that, Eric? One of our buddies, Eric, t- actually texted me when I was down there asking if I'd <laughs> noticed. I'm like, what? And then I went and looked, of course. All right. Here's what I have to say. <laughs> so many things are the opposite in New Zealand and Australia. It's actually surprising how many things are different and just basically the opposite of what is done here. But the toilet, I mean, this is, this is science here. Instead of swirling the same as it does in North America... What I saw, because I watched it every time after I was cued, it flushes straight down. They're all taller <laughs> units. And the water hits and it's gone straight. There was no swirl action. And for, the, and for you dudes out there, some of like the holiday parks, everything's a little friendlier, a little more open in New Zealand and Australia. <laughs> when you go and you have number one business, these metal troughs that are like eight feet long, it's like, hey, chummy, you know, everybody's just standing there. So it's it's all... <laughs> It's all a little different that way, but there's no direction to the water. Yeah, right. Highlight of today's podcast is. So hold on a sec. You had text down there? I would have texted you if I had known you had text, but I didn't realize you had text. So no, he did what did you do because for cell service? Okay. I texted him to ask him if he was alive because there was a volcanic eruption and there was five Canadian tourists missing. So I text Mark to see if he's alive, and he never, never responded. I did. So I, I thought that. he was the Canadian. No, that was like days later. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, you might have messaged me on a different platform then. I, pe- I was pretty sure you had been consumed by the One Ring or something down there. Yeah, the precious was around. Um, but yeah, that was really sad to hear about that volcano and all those tourists dying on the island off New Zealand. It's definitely sad news. Yeah. Uh, I still haven't, at the point of this podcast, haven't recovered all, all of the potentially uh, deceased people, bodies. But, um, yeah, no warning on that one. We were already in Australia when that occurred. 
But I wasn't texting so much that worked. Uh, iMessage worked for me. And, and there's another hack that could have been brought up on the last podcast, but I'll throw it out there now. One of the first things when you land in these foreign countries, specifically New Zealand and Australia, when you go through the airport, one thing, they're duty-free, makes our duty-free look like a micromart. I mean, there was it was like walking through a mall of duty-free. That aside, in there, you can get your SIM card. And at least compared to Canada, so much cheaper for data there. So I think I think I paid $30 for a SIM card. They popped it into my phone in 12 seconds, and I was off to the races. The SIM card gave me uh, 60 days of use, I believe it was, or at least a month. Um, and the data was 10 gigs, but you could easily increase that with a little more money as well. And unlimited social media on top of that, too. Facebook, Instagram stuff, there was no cap on that. So the SIM card switch, yeah, somebody's helping there somehow, right? But the SIM card switch was super easy to do once you landed in the airport going through the duty-free store. People are holding signs. In fact, not one, two or three young people are there holding a sign. Come over here, and there were competing companies, and they set you up, and it was great. The, the guy popped out my Canada SIM card, my North American one, and just taped it to the voucher. And also I said, well, I'll need something else. And they gave me the safety pin um, so that I could put it back in when I finished my trip. Super easy to switch back and forth. So that's worth doing just for ease of communication. It wasn't perfect. Cell coverage was not perfect across New Zealand, but it frequently was decent. So iMessage worked. Sorry, Ron. It it did. So And I communicated with some people, but it was hit and miss. It was a whirlwind trip. And to begin with, you switch the time zones so dramatically. There's you know fatigue. There's dealing with that. And every day, it was just so jam-packed that it was tiring. So there wasn't a lot of communication. But, yeah, it was possible. And if you go to these destinations, you know, it's something that's very easy to do to keep your connection with your loved ones and social networks back home. You guys are my loved ones. Sorry. Well, that's a good. That's through. a good travel pro tip. Right. For sure. One of many today. There are some. There are some I didn't cover. So I don't. Do you guys want to do a few pro tips before I start talking about the land down under and, and these two amazing excursions we went on in our brief stay? Or I have a few other travel hacks I can just throw up if you if you prefer over doing a group of tri- pro tips. Let's do travel hacks. Just it kind of goes with the flavor of the show. All right. This is a big one. This is a, this is a really big one. The plugs are different there. <laughs> I knew this going in. It's okay. I didn't get stumped. So when these days, I've, well, the past couple of years, I've been ordering Seagate external hard drives for my for my backup for my data for traveling, whatever different sized ones. The last one I ordered, I think, was a ten terabyte Seagate external hard drive, and it came with all these additional plug doodads that slide into the plug that goes in the wall. So there's one for New Zealand, Australia. I think Asia is the same. And it's this two or three prong different arrangement, of course, than what we have here that slides in. So take that with you if you use those. But even better than that, and this costs under $20, is I went on Amazon. I'm sure there are many places to source it. You can get these plugs, adapters that plug into the wall. So I even left mine with Martha there because it was so cool that she just wanted to have an extra one in the sense that it plugged in. It also has the main plug that you can plug your device in, but also has additional USB ports for multiple charging at once. So it's worth ahead of the game, 
getting one or two of those, depending on how much you plan to plug materials in. But be prepared for that different plug along the way. And for traveling, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but this was very important for when we were out on full-day boat trips and stuff, with especially with the Osmo Action or GoPro cameras and their battery life when filming, was to have an external charger. You can carry extra batteries. Instead of doing that, I had the external charger so it would cover all devices from my smartphone, my wife's, my daughter's, and the action cameras. This one's a little bigger and a little heavier heavier and cumbersome, but since we're traveling in a vehicle, no big deal. I think it was like 65 bucks and does multiple chargings with two USB ports. And again, it was on Amazon, but can be sourced anywhere. And, and reviews, you know, look at stuff like this to see what the reviews are and pick a good one for travel. It saves you a lot of stress and charges quite quickly for the devices. I think the Osmo Action within an hour or two had full charge up and going again. So there's that in the vehicle. These, I can never get the name right, but the ones that you can plug into the cigarette lighter, again, have USB ports and plug-ins. That allows you to charge as you drive. Every day in New Zealand, And we drove three or four hours, so it gave that opportunity to get devices juiced up that we couldn't do on the sites. You can get a the camper parks we were in. You can get a site for $45, $50. It was only 5 or $10 more to have a plug-in site, but the plug-ins were meant for these RVs, and they had a whole other three circular prong system than even what we had for the wall plugs so we were unable to use that when we had dinner you could use the you know the kitchen social area which there are lots of plugs around they're well aware these days the requirement for charging at these places so but it's a matter of having someone sit there and supervise your stuff right i can't remember where it was these parks should have this i don't know if it was in alaska there was a place you could go and there are all these little i forget where maybe you guys have seen it cubby holes just like at the airport where you take the key and you leave your gear in and there are plugs in it so if you're going to go do dinner or go do something you could plug and come back in two hours you know whatever you put your dollar or two in and get the key back they didn't have those so these are other ways to navigate around charging on the trip something else that i found online that i really appreciated having for the osmo action uh, for those that you can see this on video but i'll describe it well enough for audio listeners it's just a little plastic cap now, as was proven in Newfoundland, thanks to the woodland caribou stomping my camera onto the rocks, it seems like this lens is pretty durable. It didn't get scratched in that case. But I still, I bought this online. It came with a lens cleaning kit and two of them for, again, under $20. And it fits perfectly. It's a little lens cap, a little plastic one. Uh, it's called Skyreet. And it just fits perfectly over the Osmo Action or Wood GoPro as well and protects the lens hood so I can just drop my camera into any pocket, no stress about what's going on. That being said, I carry it in the pouch with a, a lens cleaning cloth, but 90% of the time clean it on my shirt sleeve because I think these little action cameras are pretty durable that way. So, But the lens cover is something cheap to get again. Second last travel tip for today for the long flights. This is something I bought for backpacking camping trips. Everybody knows you can get those airport pillows that go around your neck. You know, for me, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable around the neck to sleep for any duration of time. I end up, I try to get a seat against the wall, if I can, the side of the plane, and then I bunch it up and put it there. But this is, was made, and I'm, again, there's a variety of manufacturers, no doubt. It's a camping pillow. Trekology is the brand. It fits into a pouch that's like two inches by not even four inches. Very compact. And it's much bigger, 
than these little um, pillows that you get at the airport. And it fills up in really four breaths. And you can make it however um, firm as you want or not, depending if you need to bend it at the side of the chair. And it has a strap that you can put around the other side of your head so it doesn't fall off as you're drooling and sleeping through the night. And it was a lot more comfort, a lot bigger space and supported my head and neck along for an overnight flight on the plane. So it was a Trekology pillow that was on Amazon and the valve works really well on it. I've used it on several trips now and it's holding up so far. And I, I think it was relatively inexpensive too. Without checking, I think it was in the $20 price point range as well. And they come in different colors. All right. <laughs> the last the last travel tip. Now this was I try not to let my ego get in the way, but you know, I when we went to Alaska last summer, I was worried a little bit about sea legs. And I was I managed just fine. That was an amazing trip. Go back and listen to those podcasts if you haven't, the Kenai Fjords in Alaska and what we were able to see and experience there. But on this trip, Again, I was thinking I have no problem being out out in the waves, and it wasn't that rough. So when we talked on the last podcast about the albatross encounter, small boat. Now I think <laughs> here's my excuse. There's a few things came into play here. I, I had very little sleep, or a few variables. What was the other one? I don't know. I, maybe I was dehydrated. I don't know. But I was focused through the cameras, trying to do video and trying to do stills of these incredible albatrosses. They flew past the boat. We went to two locations. On the second location, when the boat was off for about 20 minutes and these birds were all around, I got nauseated. I felt sick to my stomach, and I was not a happy camper. I did not get sick. These companies are smart, and I figured this out later. She's, they have ginger cookies on there. They give you hot chocolate. So the second time the captain offered us ginger cookies, I'm like, there's got to be something to this. I'll have a ginger cookie. When the boat started and got going back to shore about a half hour ride, I was fine. I got, felt better. Movement was good. I, I could see the horizon the whole time. I think it was so much focus through lenses that threw me off. But I learned my lesson. Didn't happen again, thankfully, on the trip. Something to think about if you're at all concerned about seasickness or if you're susceptible to it. Really inexpensive, natural ginger root. There's different ways to get it. So I found this stuff right there in, in Kaikoura, where we were. There were several options, and it's just these little tablets. There's 45 of them in here, and you just drink a couple of them. It's non-drowsy, and it's purely natural ginger stuff. And so for the dolphin swim, just to be careful, I, I had some of those, and I've been fine. So it's, if you have a few people or that are going on a trip together or it's a family and you're uncertain, for under 20 bucks, you can pick up the stuff that can help, and you take a couple before you go out to sea, and one an hour or something. The instructions are, of course, on the box. Food for thought. Live and learn. Well done. That's a good, good, good pointers. I mean, those plugs are always an issue wherever, you know. It's more, it's better now than it ever was. I mean, it used to be where you couldn't. You used to have a voltage re regulator in addition to the plug because... Some places it was 220 and not 110. Right. But I think all of our devices nowadays will handle that. So that's cool. The batteries, you got to have a battery nowadays mm -hmm. for anything, I think. You know, especially if you're running GoPros and phones and everything you need for navigation and 
and you can probably source these plug adapters there quite readily as well but you might as well have it in your pack before you go because you never know how quickly you'll need it right easy to do all right so, so tell us about this trip australia was hot we landed in brisbane it was smoky but you could see the skyline beautiful city we were there for the graduation for the first couple of days and then we rented a car got an airbnb in bundaberg and this is something fun little game on this trip whether you're in new zealand or australia is trying to say the names properly all these towns and destinations good luck <laughs> but we went we went to bundaberg a seaside town and the night that we had got there that we arrived martha had set up an experience that she and pilly had They'd done these two events two years prior, but in February. So somewhat different seasonality later in the summer. The first night we got there, we went to experience sea turtles nesting along the beach. And it was at Mont Repos Turtle Encounters along this beach in Queensland National Parks. And Mont Repos is French for apparently the landowner that once owned this area for my place of rest. That explains the name. But this time of year, we were there early December, and the turtles are laying. They lay from mid-October through to mid-January, and hatchlings come out a couple of months later. So no hatchlings at this time. When they went in February two years ago, they had the amazing opportunity to watch a nest hatch out, and all these little sea turtles go to the water at night. That's, that's important. And laying is at night too. At this time of year when we went early December when we had this trip, everything happened at night. So you get there at 6.30, it's full on dark before you end up going out to the beach. And for the most part, these are loggerhead sea turtles, critically endangered species. There are also some green turtles and some flatback turtles that, that nest on this beach. But there are 400 no, sorry, 800 laying females in the South Pacific and about 400 that utilize this beach. So it's a very important beach for the success of this endangered species. They have a new interpretive visitor center. It's very impressive. They have now moved the parking lot, and this all feeds into some, some interesting biology. They've moved the parking lot away from the beach, away from the visitor center, because so much of this nighttime activity for turtles, both laying and hatching, relies on darkness. And headlights and ambient light of any sort can throw this off. So they moved it away. You get shuttled on a bus to this new interpretive center. Great staff. And then you wait. There's two groups of people. You're either in group one or group two. Travel tip, go for group one. If you can, because it's earlier. You get there at dark. And the question, you don't, you're not brought out to the beach, which can be anywhere from maybe a 100-yard walk to half a mile walk. It's all on a boardwalk, roughly. It's quite easy to do. Depends on where, if there's a turtle emerges and starts laying her nest, and where she emerges. So the groups wait. And, of course, there's two groups because they only handle so many people in a group and so many per night. So it's something just like the other trips. Book it ahead of time. Go on. The, the link will be in our show notes at wildandexposed.com. You want to book this ahead of time just to make sure that your travel is worthwhile. You get up there. But here's the thing. You can wait up to six hours. I don't think that's common because there are enough of them coming. But we were super lucky. We got there. We were a little late again getting in. Leave an extra hour or two for your traveling because of just navigating through 
you know, foreign roads and GPS is helpful, but isn't always 100% accurate. And give yourself a buffer window to get to your destination. I have a quick question there. Did you have to leave extra time because you were with Mark Raycroft, or is it just a, <laughs> as a general rule? <laughs> I think, well, in this case, it's a general rule. It's not It's not like Milford Sound. I did not insist on any stops on the way in. There was a lot of brush country and farmland all the way up the coast, although we did stop at a beautiful beach area. There's so many tourist beach spots and, and towns to grab lunch and walk the beach. And, yeah, there's all kinds of wildlife, bird life there. Woo, there's so many birds along the shore. It's like deafening at night, the, little, uh, the lorikeets. I think, and, and cockatoos, maybe. Uh, but those, the rainbow lorikeets, all over the place, stunning bird. And they would fly to the palms and the evergreens that rimmed the beach to roost in at night. And we would, one night we sat and had fish and chips, and you couldn't bear until dark, you could hardly hear each other talking. Just super impressive, but not in a bothersome way. Just to have that density of beautiful birds was mm-hmm. very special to be there. And then darkness came, and whoosh, quiet. So that was cool. So there were places worth stopping, and it, it was just, you know, making sure you found your way comfortably, not to be rushed. You're driving on, you know, a different side of the road. You've got to focus on that stuff. So it's just something all through this trip. If we were to do it again, we'd leave a little more flex time on on these travels. Also to take in surprise sightings and stuff that if you want to do a little detour, you have the time or grab a lunch or stretch your legs. So Bunderberg. And we got there. This the the turtle place, and the, what we did the next day was about a fifteen minute drive to the coast. And the turtles. So there were two groups of people. We got we were really lucky again. The weather in Australia. We didn't have any precipitation issues, and obviously that's been the norm this summer with all the forest fires. Things are super dry this year in Australia. It's winter here, but their summer. So we were group one. It was a moonlit night. Lots of stars out, beautiful, mellow surf coming in. We got into the visitor center. Within 15 minutes, we had a call radioed from the tour guide, the biologist on the beach, the interpreter, who was a great naturalist, uh, that a turtle had come up. And so the guide in the visitor center formed our group together, and there was probably 25 people, and followed her to the beach, and she'd wait for the signal from the other naturalist that we could approach the nesting turtle. And just the setting was um, really moving to be in right at the edge of the sea. As we walked down the beach, a second turtle emerged from the surf, and she'd forewarned us that if this happened, we'd have to stop. Their eyesight's not great, but any movement, and they will reject and go back in. So they scan from the water. They always return to the same area, same beach area where they were born. And this is pretty cool. They don't mature for over 20 years. They follow the current around the South Pacific for 20 years, and then when they're sexually mature, come back to the area of the beach where they were born to lay their eggs. And biologically, they have three clutches of eggs that they'll lay two weeks apart. And 150, I don't know if it makes as many as 200 or so eggs per clutch every two weeks for three weeks. But then they don't do it again for four years. And only one 1,000 hatchlings makes it to maturity. So it's a super slow reproductive cycle with a, a you know, very low success rate. And right. Well, that success rate you were saying when we were talking just off 
off air, it was, what did you say, one out of every thousand actually survived? Right, one out of every thousand. And recent research has shown that all of them now have plastic in them. No matter what turtle they find, it has plastic in it. And that's become an not issue. The, not the hatchlings. Yeah, young hatchlings. The adults. No, the hatchlings as well. That was the new thing. That was one of the things that they were really discussing on the beach. The adults, for sure, but the hatchlings, all the hatchlings that they've been sampling out at sea, and again, I don't know what ages. Uh, I don't yeah, at sea. I guess I'm saying straight out of the egg. Oh, yeah. No, no. Once they're out in the sea. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, are getting it right away because they just go for this stuff. Um, I can see that. The adults, part of the problem is they get plastic in their digestive system. And, of course, being a turtle with the shell, there's no way to operate and remove it. And they get gas in them, and they can no longer submerge. And they starve to death because of this bubble. And the same thing happens with boat strikes that cracks their shell. They can get gas underneath. Again, cannot submerge and feed and starve to death. And they actually had that happen to one loggerhead the day before we were there. That They tried to rescue it, and it, it succumbed to the boat strike. But... The plastics issue is something I'll cover in a little bit. But it's something of concern for such a slow reproducing species. So we were walking down the beach as a group, um, following in a line behind the guide. And about 40 yards in front of us, what looked like a rock crawled out of the water. So she stopped us. And you have to stay perfectly still so they think you're just another big boulder or rock or formation, not something alive. And we did that. And the turtle came up in about only five minutes or so, 10 minutes at most, and went up past us, thought about laying, creating a nest cavity, um, but decided not to turn and went back to sea. And apparently that happens quite a bit. They'll come ashore. She could return an hour later, maybe the next night. It's, But we'll come back, obviously, and lay them. The turtle that was nesting was a few hundred yards further down. We went to the turtle and were instructed by the naturalist how to proceed and we all would go behind we had to go way up the dune behind the turtle and that way totally out of its line of sight from behind and they get up the shore i think he said takes about 15 minutes about 15 minutes to make the nest cavity and he was able to take his headlamp and put it down in the nest cavity because the turtle can't perceive any of this around its her huge shell and you could see through the light of the headlamp what's happening and they have the front flippers which are fairly flat the rear flippers um have more dexterity and she could curve her flippers and she was digging out this hole as far down as she could reach with her flippers it took about 15 minutes as well and if she's still comfortable she lays her eggs and we were at low tide and she went well above tide line apparently they don't all, all do this so they watch all the nests super carefully because those that lay them below tide line they relocate them because they'll get washed away um, or be underwater and not heat enough for the eggs to incubate. And so this all happens at night, just like the hatchling. To get back to that, the reason it does is predation, or the, minimizes the risk of predation. So the seabirds, the gulls aren't there. Other animals aren't, don't see them, don't see it happen, don't prey on it, not as likely as it would be if they did it in the daytime. So that's one of the reasons the darkness is important to protect these nests. So we watched her lay eggs, which was very cool experience. They were, it turned out that she was one of their research turtles that had been coming back for many years. She was uh, almost 50 years old. And so they, for this small group of research turtles, they do more re uh, 
collection of data on them. And so we were really lucky that this happened to be one of those turtles as well. So when she was finished, they would count the eggs. They take all the they take ten of the eggs back to the lab or to the research station at the interpretive center. They have two hours to get them back in the nest before they have to be static for nothing to happen according to their research. So they take these 10, do measurements on them, bring them back. She laid 149 eggs in the nest. And I did not expect, you know, I did the vlog stuff for YouTube leading up to it, our drive-in, our excitement, our anticipation of what we're going to experience. And I've never, having this experience, not knowing what to expect. And it was truly moving to have this big turtle who's been around for 50 years and has already navigated all the South Pacific and back at this beach and, and be in this space for her. And actually, what was the most moving part to me was when she left and went back to sea. You know, and you just, what's this? It's, we live on such an amazing planet. What's this turtle's life and world like? It was just to watch her disappear into the moonlight back to the sea after laying all these eggs in so carefully, about another 20 minutes covering the nest. She covered the nest for like 15, 10 yards lower than she needed to. She kept throwing sand and it was a big deal. But just to, you know, imagine the lifestyle, this incredible an ancient species on our planet was very moving. So when they moved, they actually moved the nest to, I think it was, it wasn't ideally constructed by her. And the assistant there moved it a little closer to the grass line. And so it was good because the people were able to help in the whole time. They did it quickly. Everybody carried two or four eggs and we were able to collect some photographs. I didn't expect to be able to because it was nighttime. So because of his light under the turtle, and because they permitted about five minutes of photographing when she finished laying or right at the end of it, I was able to get a few images that we'll put up in the show notes to help relay some of the story behind the scenes too. But it was really moving. And the plastic's big issue for these turtles. And the, the biologist there, he's even more of a birder, and he's just saying shorebirds are just getting crushed populations for plastics and what they're consuming too in that area. Very concerning. And while we were on our way back from the beach, we had a couple of flying foxes go right over our head in the, in the night sky. That was super cool. So the big fruit-eating bats. And, uh, yeah, it was something to see these turtles. So the- do they talk, they, I'm sure, got into the biology of these turtles. The loggerheads are pretty large. What, what was the size of an adult? You know, yeah, there were so many things that, I think I recorded on video that I haven't, I've only been home for four days and I, I didn't get that down in today's notes. They are big. I, I would only be guessing if I was to look up there to say their weight without looking it up. But yeah, it's impressive, impressive turtle. I mean, I can hold my arms out and show you guys how big she was, but I don't have those dimensions on my notes. Sorry to say, um, it was more just their incredible age and how long it takes to make, to reach sexual maturity and the 20 years navigating around the South Pacific, those things were monumental to me. That was what we did the first night there. And, and I, for any of you touring Australia in Queensland, think about Bundaberg, look this stuff up online. We'll have the links, like I said, in our show notes, it's really worth doing and a lot to be learned. And they, they need, I have all these, they, I'm sure there are links too on, on the issues with, with the night sky. But um, at night, hatchlings find their way from their nest to the sea by moving towards the lightest horizon they see. 
Under natural conditions, this is over the ocean, and hatchlings will quickly travel down the beach to the water. On nesting beaches near towns, resorts, and camping areas, artificial lights can affect a turtle's ability to see the natural horizon. Hatchlings become disoriented, veering from their natural path and heading towards the artificial light. Even hatchlings that have made it to the sea can be lured back to the land by strong coastal lights. So this is something that there's all kinds of educational material they had there and they talked a lot about and clearly are, are trying to encourage the nearby town to reduce as much as possible the ambient lighting along the coast. And they've actually planted trees along the beach with something that wasn't there years ago. And now these trees were probably 40 feet high that rimmed the beach that helped as well to make it darker. So... So I just yeah, looked up lot. the size. It says loggerhead sea turtle weighs approximately 300 pounds, with the largest specimens weighing in at more than 1,000 pounds. Wow. Yeah, well, that's a huge animal. Yeah, it was something to see. Worth doing. And it, it, I mean, I, I, being a biologist and wildlife photographer, I'm into all this stuff. But honestly, I, I got way more out of this than I anticipated. The experience itself and there are enough turtles um, laying their eggs there that it's a very high success rate of having this experience and again it's mid-october to mid-january and you know we've talked about this about new zealand too we went because of martha's graduation but the timing was kind of perfect because it was the beginning of summer before it was that busy for tourist season but one thing uh, an interpreter told me at the moorapo turtle encounters um, building was that if you time it just right in january you can have a night where you have a turtle laying eggs and a nest hatching it because there's that overlap so if you happen to be there in that window that that would be pretty cool too to see the hatchlings because it doesn't doesn't occur in early december yeah and there's places closer to home where you can see other species and i know in florida there are places where you can go to the beach and and basically observe the uh, I think they're green sea turtles in Florida, though. I don't think they're loggerhead. But, yeah, it, it's definitely an experience that I think everybody should have once. Just to, you know, all these species. I looked at the bighorn sheep last weekend when we were out and just looking at what it takes to make a living in their environment. And you think about the, the sea turtles as well. You've got, you know, obviously predation in the water that's going to lead to that one in a thousand, but you've got predation just in that short journey from the nest, you know, to, to the ocean itself. If they come out in the daylight, it's almost a hundred percent. Sure. So, uh, just, it's a lot tougher to make a living in as a wild, wild thing. Definitely. I think there's some on the Carolina coast too. Yeah, I was just reading that on this Wikipedia page. It says, in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, the greatest concentration is along the southeastern coast of North America and in the Gulf of Mexico. Something to see. That was a pretty cool way to start Australia after uh, our first night in, after the graduation stuff. Then the next morning was the highlight of my Australia trip. Aside, okay, clarify, the graduation. All right, my wildlife pilot. <laughs> and you know what? Truly, these these excursions all surpassed my expectations. So we went 
same area out of Bundaberg with a boat tour to the southern tip of the Great Barrier Reef. A two-hour ride on this relatively, not big per se, but big enough boat, super comfortable, great cabin, lots, there had to be, I didn't count, I should have, there might have been over a hundred seats in there for people. But on our trip, there were probably 25 people on the boat. I was, when we were going, I'm like, I'm so glad they're operating because I don't know how they're profiting today. So it was a two-hour trip out to the Great Barrier Reef. Best crew experience on the trip. Great people, very friendly, very enthusiastic. And the two-hour ride out, no idea what to expect. We get there. Now, Pilly and Martha had done this two years ago. So it's Lady Musgrave Island is where this boat goes to. Again, link will be in the show notes. Southern tip of the Great Barrier Reef. We get there, and they did this two years ago, and they opted to do the traditional tour. The morning, you can take a glass boat, glass bottom boat, tour to the island. So you see through the glass bottom, you go to Lady Musgrave Island, and you spend two hours learning about the history of the island, the ecosystem, the bird life. Pilly based on experience, said, you know, let's just stay and snorkel. We can do that. And they had no problem with that. Everybody took the boat tour and spent the morning on the island, and only the only our group snorkeled. There were four of us snorkeling. That was it. And, okay, travel tip. Live and learn, Raycroft. Here we go. My head is still itchy. You know how you get a little scab on your arm? <laughs> And while that scab's healing, it bugs you and you just want to scratch it off? Well, that's my whole cranium. Sorry to say. My whole head top. I used to have enough hair that wasn't an issue. And I thought I was smart enough approaching this. I knew it was on the radar. Be smart about sun exposure. And in New Zealand and Australia, the ozone layer is very thin if anything's going you could i you could feel yourself cook with your skin exposed in both these places on sunny days so i had to be careful about that i knew it i was planning so on this boat they had wetsuits 10 bucks rental you have your wetsuit for the day again helps with buoyancy i'm all in you've got sun 100 sun coverage and you've got your wetsuit your flippers your snorkel you can get prescription uh eye goggles i think there was a minor surcharge so on on all uh, the other trip at Kaikoura in New Zealand for that epic dolphin experience, again, you can rent the prescription eye goggles there. So that really helps with your enjoyment of what you're seeing if you have glasses. That being said, I'm all covered. I got my stuff on. It was The water was perfect there, of course, and it was calm. Snorkeling was as easy as I could ever imagine. I just didn't think about the top of my head. <laughs> as I snorkeled for two hours in the morning, we came in for lunch. They gave us a great breakfast on this boat tour. They gave us a phenomenal lunch and then two more hours in the afternoon. And this reef kind of went around in a U shape from the boat in the morning. We went one direction and the captain said to us, and I did part of the vlog with him. He was great. Uh, he said in the afternoon, go the other way because everybody will be going that direction when they come back. So we had, and for the most part, it was quieter where we went in the afternoon too. But yeah, my head, I could feel it by the end of the day and I, I dive down and dunk my head more often because it felt hot. I had no idea what was happening. I mean, I want to get into the, 
the magical experience of snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef. But just to finish this this terrible story, within 24 hours, we were back in Brisbane, and my head was oozing stuff. I mean, just blistered, just cooked. And I had sun, what's it called? I don't know. I I had sun exposure to the point where I felt sick and, you know, obviously no energy. And and so we went to see a doctor because it was oozing, got antibiotics. And this is another thing, traveling these company, countries, all these little rabbit holes, have travel insurance, get it before you go. And, you know, read the fine print and do what you can that way. So get the antibiotics because they thought it might be infected. I'm like, oh, come on. It's only been 24 hours. How is this even happening? How could it even be infected? So I take the next day, over the next 12 hours, I take two antibiotic pills. And then I go to have a shower, take off my shirt, and I have this rash on my whole upper body, like I'm color of Spider-Man. I'm like, what's going on? So I Google it, you know, wonder of the internet, and that's one of the if allergic responses to this antibiotic. So I stop the antibiotics and can that. And the funny thing is when you travel through these countries, one of the things on the customs list that you check is that you don't have a rash. So I'm joking when I told the guys earlier, I had to wear long sleeves back to get back to North America. Rash was gone in 24 hours, no other side effects. It was fine. But my point is do this trip, go to the Great Barrier Reef. When you rent the wetsuit, rent the wetsuit hood as well. That goes over your head and protects you from sunburn. That was the only bad thing that happened. Everything else was wonderful. The snorkeling, sea turtles, so we only saw green sea turtles at the Great Barrier Reef. I think we saw four or five over the day. They are chill, just like you you know you can imagine from all the the Disney stuff. You know, it's, hey man, they swim along, having a good time, swim down to the bottom. They have their their turtle cleaning stations, they call them, where they'll rest and little fish will pick at them. You got and, to watch that. Yeah, and they're munching on the coral as they're just chilling there. And so all this, I have the Osmo action again, like the GoPro Seven. Do it. Take one of these. The water at times, it was variable throughout the day, but it was crystal clear at times. And to have these turtles just just coasting on by. And funny story but happened with one of the turtles. So at Kaikura with the dolphins, I'd rented, and I have one at home. So take one of these little floaties that attach to the bottom of the GoPro or the Osmo Action. The little yellow things that are they're cheap to buy. And it, so that you're not going to lose it if you drop your camera, slips out of your hand in the water. I didn't have that for the Great Barrier Reef, so Pilly, my wife, had this strawberry pouch thing on her backpack with a little tether, a little drawstring. The strawberry thing, it's just some kind of, it's a reusable bag. I got I to gotta stop right there. I got a shout out, sorry. Big shout out to New Zealand. There's no plastic bags in New Zealand. Stop for a second, think about that. You go to their grocery store, they do not exist. No plastic bags. You either pay a buck, and get a cloth reusable bag, or you pay a, a small fee and have paper bags. There's no plastic bags. Right on. Okay, so Pilly carries this strawberry that opens up into this cloth bag in case she needs it somewhere, a reusable bag. So I use that by tethering it through the bottom of the Osmo Action, the same mount you have on a GoPro, tying it on, wrapping it twice around my wrist so the GoPro or the Osmo action is attached so it won't drop through the day and go down 40 feet into the coral and not be retrievable. I'm holding it, and this turtle dude is coming up, just 
swimming past me and sees this red strawberry thing and comes right in. He's like, oh, that's good. And he wanted to bite it. It was great. So I just had to pull my hand back. Pretty cool experience. Also saw a stingray along the bottom. But what was what was really mesmerizing for hours were the variety of species of fish. So we were along the rim of the coral. Where we we could snorkel, they recommended we don't go over the coral because it was literally two feet deep. And in low tide, some of it was even exposed because they don't want you to contact the coral because it damages it or you can cut yourself. So we would just glide along the rim, the drop-off, or out a little bit from it. And obviously, it's not a straight line. And you go in all these little coves this way and that, and there's a big big mound of it to the left, and you go between a tunnel, not a tunnel, but a, a Y in it that's deep, and there are all these fish. You know, we didn't see a big one, but, you know, a foot-and-a-half-long grouper would come up and by. And then there are these parrotfish of different colors. And so many species of fish and it was just just gliding so slowly minimal movement they recommend you keep your arms at your side and all this stuff because everything just is more chill and will pass by you more closely through these schools of fish and even with the wide angle lens of these action cameras they're right there going through and i probably had 10 different species of fish where i'd go through a school and some some of them might have been 10 inches long the whole school other ones were only an inch long, and some even microscopic, right in the coral, I'd go right up and there'd be this whole little bunch of very colorful fish. But when some of them you'd go through and they'd just switch sides and just be this flash of silver or blue, and it's, it's just an incredible place to be. And, and I, I could have snorkeled there indefinitely, except for my head. <laughs> so t- talk a little bit about the, the reef itself, because it's, not doing so good for the whole length of it, right? It's the big one of the biggest reefs in the world, right? Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, issues going on. Uh, this area at Lady Musgrave Island at the very southern tip of the reef, thankfully, where we were is doing fine. No guarantees, of course, but it's a big issue with coral bleaching. And, uh, yeah, a lot of the reef is damaged. I, I have... I don't have a lot of stats in front of me. I should have that. Uh, and Australia is, has 2,900 reefs that run 2,300 kilometers, 400 different coral species. It's the world's largest reef. It's a Great Barrier Reef. Um, and as far as these are stats they had on the boat, these brochures they gave out, 2 million visitors a year, 64,000 jobs, and puts in... billion into economic contribution, so definitely is worth protecting. And it says the main causes for the deterioration and dying or bleaching of the reef is, well, it's temperature increasing, uh, climate change, and its carbon emissions, um, and increased storm activity also is uh, an issue with breaking off parts of it but i think it's mainly temperature change and i I think the current issues um there's some issue with uh, the main streams going through the ocean changing or slowing and then there's a bunch of things the common sense things that we can do to help and honestly the biggest thing is you know that i that's easiest well there's so many but to me for individuals it's just reducing plastic consumption it's amazing when we travel and you and we try not 
to consume single-use plastics, it's so difficult. It's just everywhere, you know, from the little pods for coffee, for the little butter things that come with the roll. All these little tiny plastic things end up somewhere. So much of that, and then just the bottled water. So, I mean, I know we have made a concerted effort now. I have a, a coffee mug I take everywhere, and I only get that. No more disposable. I mean, when I drink a coffee in 15 minutes, why do I need a, a cup and a plastic lid every time that's going to be tossed away and not reused in any way? So reusable coffee mug. Get a cool one that you like and keep it in your car, your truck. Have another one in your backpack for traveling. That option's there. You'll feel better for it, honestly, over time. Every time you do it, you know there's a plastic lid that's not going out there. And some people have four or five coffees a day. The other thing is a Nalgene. I fill it up wherever I am. They're BPA-free. They're, you know, as far as you know, 100% safe that way. I have a, a carabiner on it, and I clip it to my backpack. That full Nalgene, I honestly, I don't feel that weight as I'm walking, and it'll carry me through a lot of the day back on the boat. In a lot of places, airports now, so many airports where you have a drink fountain, they also have your water, drinking water, refillable container spot. And so, of course, they sell all the plastic bottled drinks, but it's right there. And then that eliminates that. All these little things that we can do, but reusable, single-use plastics, you know, I, I stay away from it. And that helps. But there's so much going on environmentally. But yeah, the Great Barrier Reef, really, I mean, I regret not looking up all those facts, but it, it is a big concern with the bleaching and how much of it is dying, significant percentage of it. large percentage of the the original issues were because of the increase in ecotourism, because they didn't have policies about, you know, don't touch the reef. Everybody was interacting with the reef, and it's a living, it's a living thing. Um, so they'll have, you know, these big coral spawns and that's the way it regrows. And some of these areas have regenerated, but they've had to leave them completely alone, but then they've had to adopt policies, you know, like what you're saying, this company did where you just don't touch it at all and you don't cause those problems. But then you add the additional factors on and it's, you know, it's just the devastation is going to be exponential. So it's it's nice that they're changing the areas that they go to. They're not concentrating visits to one particular area all the time, and that you know it allows it to to regenerate and so that we can enjoy it, you know, into our grandchildren's lifetime. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. That's that's good sound ecotourism advice anywhere. I mean, there's more people than what can be handled, but I think. One of the good takeaways is it's a transformational experience. So those people that do have the privilege of, of going there, you know, it really makes them care about this ecosystem mm -hmm. you know, and can share that information, come home and tell the stories and show the photos or the videos and, and their passion and what, what was so cool and, and about it and share that information and, and get it out there because again like we talked about in a, in a recent podcast there a lot of society doesn't even tune into it so it's it's good to share it but yeah it has to be measured with, with any any ecotourism for sure but yeah it was it was it was good that they told people it wasn't just for the care of the reef not to touch it but you'll hurt yourself you'll cut oh, yourself. right yeah for sure so that was enough to keep people off of it for sure we had two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon snorkeling and, and these different encounters. And again, the, this, the fish life 
the different sizes and everything, all the interactions going on, the starfish, there's the sea cucumber dudes, they were just popping out and everywhere. By late afternoon, there are all these big flat footballs laying on the on the sand along the edge of the reef, 30 feet down, moving around slowly. On the way out on the boat, we maybe had gone 15 minutes and the captain had just dropped down, just shut the boat down and off to the left-hand side were seven manta rays feeding. And I'd never seen those in person and was just awestruck with their aquatic wingspan and, and their, their big white gills open as they were feeding and watching that. I would have loved to have seen it from underwater. But just what that privilege to see to see them was quite moving as well. We didn't get to see any sharks. There were some, have been seen around there, but I was hoping to have the opportunity. But we did a lot of video that, again, I haven't really digested and looked at yet, but I'm so excited to do just for the schooling of all these different fish species and to be there, having them all around, and then the turtles, too. The green, and they were green turtles, I think I said there. Mm -hmm. If you're in the Queensland area, of Australia and look it up and Bundaberg is the smaller small city there Lady Musgrave Island uh, south tip of the Great Barrier Reef it is a, a life experience watch the sun protect yourself <laughs> cover up get the wetsuit head to toe hat you know and I had that buff that we've talked about it as a pro tip you know in other podcasts for summer trips and stuff that I it's just that cloth that goes around my neck if I'm on a fishing trip or something in a boat, you know, on water, it's just amplified as the sun reflects. I had it around my neck to protect my neck. Why on earth didn't I just pull it over my head and then put the goggles on? Live and learn again. <laughs> well, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to go one of these days. It's it's truly worth seeing. Like I said, if any of our listeners, if you find yourself going to Australia, then put it on the radar. It's a very moving experience and a very enjoyable one we had and, and great outfit we went with. and Yeah, I'll do it again in a, in a second. So now what? The holidays and then you've got to get back to work. Well, yeah, I'm editing already around the clock. I have no idea what time nighttime and daytime is. I The first night back in 11 p.m. in Toronto and I was able to sleep right through the night. I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm going to switch it back. No problem. The next night, I think it was 3 a.m., and I'm still, like, batting my eyes at the computer, editing away. And the last two nights, it was 5 a.m. It's all over the place. But, I mean, what I tell Pilly is I've just got to edit. Whenever I'm awake, it doesn't matter. We just It's just mass editing right now. So, yeah, I'm, I desperately want to get caught up and, and get this stuff done because it was – we traveled so much this year, this fall, that it just got getting banked and not dealt with. So, I haven't edited the moose from Alaska in the summer yet. Lots to do. Lots to look. Get forward. on it. Get on it, I Ray am. Croft. I am. Yeah. So, so I was that. just I was oh. just looking up the the seven natural wonders of the world, and I think we have the opportunity or the potential to to see a few of them. I, one's not too far from you. I didn't realize Niagara Falls was on the list. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef, of course. Grand Canyon, I've seen that. The Aurora, I've experienced in Wyoming, but it has to be a pretty strong flare for us to be able to see it. Uh, and, you know, it's long exposure photography here. It's not like you would see in Alaska or in Norway or Iceland. And Rio de Janeiro is on the list. Like, 
I'm not sure I have any desire to go to Rio at all. There's far too many people there. But I was surprised to see it on the list. And then, of course, Mount Everest and Victoria Falls is another one that I just the area that you have to go to to see Victoria Falls. So the Great Barrier Reef is one that, you know, I obviously would like to be able to to see in my lifetime. And I'm I'm glad to hear that it was everything that you'd expected as well, and maybe then some. The amount of life there, for sure. I, the corals, you know, they they were doing the, um, what do you call it when they reproduce? Sorry. The, the spawn. The f- yeah, spawn would happen with different uh, levels of tide. So that was interesting. We saw some of that, but thankfully not full on because it's kind of a slime when that happens. But it doesn't last as the tide shifts in and out. Um, but the variety of and color of fish life and other aquatic life you know, blew me away. The color of the coral wasn't like all kinds of crazy rainbow colors. You know, it was a lot of natural colored coral. And then every once in a while, there'd be this brain-shaped one that was purple or red, different color. But yeah, it's honestly, if if you're in Australia and in that region or in another region that's still accessible to the Great Barrier Reef, it's it's definitely worth doing. Got to be done in my books. Yeah. If you're there, why not? So it's one of these things where back home editing, I'm, it was such a busy year for travel, but the finish was such an intense three-week trip, I, I'm ready to chill for a while mm-hmm. and, and edit at this point. I don't have anything planned immediately. There's some things cooking, but um, yeah, I I'm, I'm need to get caught up in other things and, and reconnect with some family and friends and just chill out a bit. And, and it's got to sink in. Because it was bang, 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 bang. All these cool places that we were at good fortune to see. That each one of them just needs to sink in and you know, prep stuff for the show notes and relive it. Look at the video. Yeah. But thanks for listening. And for our listeners, you were you've seen enough of the footage that you were happy with it out of the out of the Osmo action. I'm loving it. Yeah. I yeah. I haven't. I've looked at some of it on my MacBook Pro traveling, but it's just, again, there's so much consumed with traveling. I haven't looked at a lot. I've viewed a lot of it on the action, driving, a tiny little screen. But, you know, I, something I've noticed about these cameras. So when, you know, we did a couple of uh, gear bag shoots in Colorado a month ago. Mm-hmm. And... Just to highlight a detail, I was, you know, the one we did with Don Wilson, I mean, I think was really good. I was concerned because we could only do it in harsh light that day because we were so busy with other projects that we were working on. And we needed to be out of the sun, but her cap was shadowing her face. And I, the whole time I was worried about that level of contrast. These cameras pull it out pretty good. The detail's still there. It wasn't lost. So the underwater stuff, I mean, I dunked this camera so many times on this trip up and down, and I, I think it should be phenomenal. The stuff I've looked at it, the fish stuff, uh, footage, yeah, I, I'm truly excited about what we could put together for a vlog. And there's a tremendous amount of technology packed into a, what, one inch by two inch by three inch box? Incredible, right? Handheld, fully stabilized, 4K. And I mean, I even I switched it to still mode. That was fun with wet hands on the screen on the back. I'd be <laughs> on the surface of the water trying to flip it back and forth with my finger. Took some still photos and stuff too. Just wanted to see what they would be like underwater. 
how they'd hold up. I haven't edited those yet, but the I think it captured it wonderfully. But I haven't gone through and really, you know, worked on creating a blog or anything to to know for sure. But I'm very confident and optimistic with the quality of underwater footage and the storytelling. Well, the caribou stuff from Newfoundland this fall, I was really impressed with the quality of that mm -hmm. video as they walked over it on the trail. So I have no reason not to believe this should be as high quality, especially for storytelling online and maybe other applications. You know, it's 4K. Who knows? But in, totally impressive for something that fits in your pocket. You know, I, I can remember a trip to Alaska I did with my good buddy Jason, I'm guessing maybe eight or nine years ago, and video was a new thing for DSLRs. And he had a new Nikon DSLR. He just bought it for that for that trip, and he brought he rented a gimbal system, and it was these counterbalanced weights that went down about two feet. And he's a gear guy. He's all about this stuff, and, and a lot like Michael that way, and really great with putting this stuff together. I'm not. I just want to get shooting. He spent a day and got the whole thing balanced, and he had so much fun walking along game trails with this stabilized DSLR with the mountains and the foliage and telling the story. You can do that with something now you can put in your chest pocket. And it's 4K. Mm -hmm. Right? So, big game changer. And, you know, they're relatively inexpensive and durable. So, for people who are going to spend the money on these trips, <laughs> it's it, why not? Yeah, so Ron just held up the GoPro 8 box, and there's nothing in the top of it. No, there's not. <laughs> it, it's it's packed in a pelican case so uh, we we are and i don't i haven't told either one of you guys this um going to dominican republic in a few weeks and i plan to put that and the the action to work underwater and hopefully in a parasail <laughs> we'll see how that goes that'll be fun hey, hey wear yeah. a scuba hood or a snorkel yeah hood. oh yeah no, no, I have the the neck thing, and I'm just going to pull over the top like Mark should have. My hair is translucent, so I can't take any risks whatsoever. I had that happen in San Diego one time, and I would take my hat off, and half my scalp would come with it. So I feel your pain. That's cool. Well, I look forward to hearing about that. I haven't even – this is how long I've been off radar. I don't know any of the specs of that GoPro 8. Huh. Going to have to look that up tonight. Got to go, guys. Yeah, it's pretty – pretty insane watch some of the footage from it and they're they're so reasonably priced they almost can't not have one do the specs obviously surpass the osmo action or how does that compare i think they're fairly similar i mean there's obviously some advantages to the gopro 8 the biggest one is for vlogging and i thought about you know when we're able to do a location podcast we could record the whole thing on the gopro 8 it's got it's going to have uh, an external microphone. It has the built-in clip, so you don't need a case. You just the two things at the bottom fold down, and then you can you can put it in any of those mounts. The external microphone, and then it's got a port for to power an external light as well. So it's it's definitely built for vlogging. So it's something that we can even do you know after dark in the future. Kind of is why I got it, and and like you know the Osmo Pocket those external components aren't out yet it's going to be probably three or four more weeks before they're out but they're coming and i think it would it'll 
serve us well when we get in the field together and are able to do some of those podcasts. We wouldn't, you know, we might be able to save time and save carrying uh, headsets in and do some of that, just sitting next to each other and having a conversation. So awesome. I wanted to test it out anyway. Does it have a front screen like the action? It does. Yeah. It's got a, it's, it's basically built for a vlogger. Right. Uh, but it, but it's, you know, like the other GoPros, it's water sealed down to 30 or 40 feet, I believe. Okay. So I look forward to trying that out underwater. Yeah. So I'm, I hear the comparison. I'm glad to hear you got some good footage. Oh, I'm, I'm super excited between the dolphin stuff at Kaikoura, New Zealand, and then the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, I'm really excited about the footage. Absolutely. And just so everybody knows, we're not sponsored by either, even though oh. we talk about all those products. We're not sponsored by them. We're, that's on our dime. And, and anything that you hear is because it's actually what we believe. It's not because somebody's paying us to say it. Totally. And speaking of which, if anybody wants an Osmo Pocket and want to DM me for a heck of a deal, that's okay. I mean, we were <laughs> we were so excited about the Pocket, and it's a great little device, but I just prefer the the ease of stabilization with the action and the storytelling, personally that way. So yeah, I don't want to see it collect dust forever. All right, Michael, thanks for coming to Oz, Australia. No worries, mate. Kangaroos, flying foxes, sea turtles. Koalas? No koalas? Koalas, that's another topic. Because of all the fires, there's been a lot of issue with koalas. They're not a fast-moving animal, so a lot have succumbed to these big brush fires. And their rescue centers have been set up, and they're trying to to rehabilitate those that have been burned. And, yeah, it's a sad state of affairs for koalas in parts of Australia right now with the extensive forest fires. Yeah, big issue. Didn't see one, though. It's just we only had three days out and about. And the Great Barrier Reef and the sea turtles consumed what we could really fit in. Kangaroos were just—we drove past some. I didn't see very many. I'm, I'm sure if we went and looked in the right areas, we'd see a lot more. Right. Limited time, but it was hot. Muggy coastline was great, but in in the interior in Brisbane a bit, it was quite hot and muggy. So totally flipped the dime coming back here. Well, check out the show notes on wildandexposed.com to see images and video and links from today's story from Australia. And to see more of our team's work, you can see that on Instagram, Facebook, on YouTube at Wild and Exposed Podcast. And no matter which platform you're listening to us or viewing us on, make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button and to give us a positive review, a thumbs up or a five-star rating as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. If you've got an extra few seconds, leave us a comment. That also helps us to gain traction in this busy world of podcasting. I'd like to take a moment and thank Missy McKenzie, our hardworking and talented producer, for all that she does behind the scenes to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.